1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire. More deniable DDoS attacks strike countries friendly to Ukraine, Predatory sparrows assault on Iran's steel industry. A callback phishing campaign impersonates security companies. The Anubis Network is back. Thomas Etheridge from CrowdStrike on the importance of outside threat hunting. Rick Howard weighs in on sentient AI. And a ransomware gang ups the ante. from the Cyberwire Studios at Data Tribe. I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Monday, July 11th, 2022. Lithuania's state energy provider Ignitis Group sustained a large distributed denial of service attack over the weekend, LRT reports. The attacks had been intermittent over more than a week, peaking on Saturday. Ignitus said that it has now overcome the attacks and that its control systems were not affected. Tech Monitor says that Killnet claimed responsibility for the operation. Lithuania, like the other Baltic states, has strongly supported Ukraine during Russia's war. It has recently stopped imports of Russian natural gas and, just this morning, imposed further restrictions on Russian shipments to its discontinuous Kaliningrad territory. Kilnet also claimed responsibility for a DDoS attack against a website operated by the U.S. Congress, which experienced brief interruptions of public access between 9 and 11 a.m. Thursday. CyberScoop quotes the group's crowing over Telegram, They have money for weapons for the whole world, but not for their own defense. The degree of control Russian intelligence services exercise over Killnet remains unclear, but the group makes no secret of its determination to support Russia in its war against Ukraine. Wired has a brief overview of the group's activities, which have affected targets in Lithuania, Italy, the United States, Romania, and Norway. Killnet has declared war against these and other states who've been too sympathetic to Ukraine. For all of its online posturing, Killnet's activities haven't so far risen above a nuisance level. Flashpoint offers a suitably tepid appraisal of the group's work, saying, While Killnet's threats are often grandiose and ambitious, the tangible effects of their recent DDoS attacks have so far appeared to be negligible. The BBC reports that Predatory Sparrow, a nominally hacktivist group opposed to Iran's regime, which claimed to have disrupted operations at Iran's Mubarakhe Steel Company on June 27, has posted videos of fires at the facility it claims were caused by its cyber attack. Mobarak Steel has minimized the effects of the attack, saying that its operations were not disrupted. CyberScoop reports that Predatory Sparrow has also dumped a set of documents it calls top-secret and which it claims were taken from the Iranian facilities during the cyber-attack. Those claims, as well as the authenticity of the documents themselves, remain unverified. Given the long-running tension between Iran and Israel, there's been widespread speculation in the Israeli press that Predatory Sparrow, which presents itself as an Iranian dissident group, is operating in the interest of Israeli intelligence services, The Israeli government has begun an investigation into the source of the stories, which may or may not have derived from leaks. CrowdStrike on Friday detected a callback phishing campaign that impersonates CrowdStrike and other security companies. The social engineering effort begins with an email that claims to have discovered a potential compromise on the recipient's network. The email provides a telephone number and invites the victim to call and arrange an audit of their workstations. It's unclear what might happen next, but the call will almost certainly invite the victim to install malware into their systems under the guise of a security update. CrowdStrike says, Historically, callback campaign operators attempt to persuade victims to install commercial rat software to gain an initial foothold on the network. It's an old scam, and while one might think it played out, people continue to fall for it. The impersonation of a security firm is thought to add additional plausibility to the imposture. CrowdStrike points out with emphasis that CrowdStrike will never contact customers in this manner. Nor, one might add, will any other reputable security company. It's also worth noting that the campaign is purely fraudulent, and doesn't involve any compromise of a security firm's networks. Security Affairs reports that the Anubis network is back, providing command and control infrastructure for credential phishing that's targeting users in Portugal and Brazil. The initial contact is often by smishing, phishing with a text message, with a link to a bogus landing page designed to induce users to enter their credentials. And finally, researchers at the firm ReSecurity reported over the weekend that the Black Cat Gang is upping its ransom demands. The gang, a competitor of both the once-and-future Conti and the clearly active Lockabit 3.0, is now asking its victims for $2.5 million in exchange for stopping all the stuff it gets up to. While Black Cat is a major player in the ransomware-as-a-service subsector of the criminal-to-criminal market, it isn't simply engaged in double extortion, but in what re-security calls quadruple extortion. The researchers explain that Black Cat's approach includes encrypting the victim's files, the first step, of course, in a classic ransomware attack. Victims are then offered a key to decrypt their files and restore access to their compromised data— The second aspect of Black Cat's attack involves data theft and the attendant threat of doxing, of releasing sensitive data. This is the now-familiar double extortion. The third phase of a Black Cat attack is denial of service. The attackers conduct DDoS attacks to close down the victim's public websites. The DDoS, of course, will be called off when the victim pays. And the fourth and final phase of quadruple extortion is, according to ReSecurity, Harassment. The gang does reputational damage to the victim by calling customers, business partners, employees, and media to tell them the organization was hacked. This, too, increases the pressure on the victim to pay. Quadruple extortion is a noteworthy development in the C2C market. A number of ransomware operators have recently tended to concentrate on the second phase only, stealing data—or at least claiming to have stolen data— and then threatening to release the data if they're not paid off. It's easier than bothering with encryption. But Black Cat has gone in the opposite direction, opting for a more determined, more intense approach. In some respects, the larger ransom demands aren't surprising. The complexity and expense of quadruple extortion would seem to warrant a bigger ransom, if, that is, the hoods are going to realize any return on their investment. Conti and Lockbit don't think much of Black Cat, dismissing them as scammers, which seems cheeky coming as it does from a bunch of criminal rivals who are engaged in a form of scamming themselves. Black Cat may have connections with other criminal elements, notably Dark Side and Black Matter. There's been some suspicion, in fact, that code overlaps apart. Black Cat may represent a rebranding of Dark Side, after that gang's colonial pipeline hack drew more attention and heat than the old gang was comfortable with. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. And joining me once again is Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's chief security officer and also our chief analyst. Rick, always great to welcome you back. Hey, Dave. So a few weeks ago, one of Google's AI researchers, a guy by the name of Blake Lemoyne, he got his 15 minutes of fame by claiming that the AI he was working on, which goes by the name Lambda, a language model designed to converse with people, he says that it became sentient. Yep, And he claimed that Lambda could pass the Turing test. Now, I know you are a huge fan of Alan Turing, the guy who wrote that original paper that described the test. So,
2: what's going on here, Rick? Help, help me understand. <laughs> well, you're right that uh, my all-time favorite computer science hero is Alan Turing, right? In addition to the work he did on artificial intelligence in the 40s and 50s, he also mathematically proved that the modern-day computer could be built as a machine, uh, a Turing machine, he called it back in the 1930s. Not to be confused with the Turing test that we're talking about here, a Turing machine, right? So, Mm -hmm. And remember, we didn't have computers back then, but every computer we use today is a Turing machine, and we have him to thank for that. Mm. And let's not forget about his code-breaking efforts at Bletchley Park during World War II, breaking the German Enigma code. His right. efforts probably helped save, what, 20 million lives and shorten the war by years. But the Turing test is one of the first tests ever developed to determine if a machine can think. You know,
1: it, it reminds me of um, a segment uh, from that, uh, that great movie, uh, The Imitation Game, oh, yeah, uh, which yeah. had Benedict Cumberbatch, uh, y- y- <laughs> more recently known as Doctor Strange. But <laughs> in this movie, he was playing Alan
2: Turing. Is that what we're talking about here? Oh, my goodness, yes. This is a fantastic movie, and I'm so glad that you brought that scene up. I've been telling people for years that the scene is the best explanation I've ever heard that describes the Turing test and what we thought artificial intelligence meant back in the 1940s. Let's listen to a piece of it. Of course, machines can't think as people do.
0: The machine is different. The interesting question is just because something uh, thinks differently from you does that mean it's not thinking? we allow for humans to have such divergences from one another? You like strawberries, I hate ice skating, you cry at sad films, I am allergic to pollen. What is the point of, of, of different tastes, different preferences if not to say that our brains work differently, that we think differently? And if we could say that about one another, then why can't we say the same thing
2: for brains built of copper and wire,
0: steel? Wow,
1: Cumberbatch is so good in that scene and uh, a great movie overall, but this scene in particular, really good stuff.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm so with you on that. And if our listeners haven't seen that movie yet, stop what you're doing, do not pass (laughs) go, and consume that story. It's fabulous. But when Turing described in that scene the Turing test from his paper Computing, Machinery, and Intelligence published in the 50s is what this Google engineer is talking about. He claims that his Lambda could pass the Turing test. Now,
1: Rick, I have been a fan of this kind of thing since the first time I played with Eliza on an old (laughs) Apple II, right? Like I was hooked from that point on, which is like 80 lines of code or something. And I mean, it convinced me, Thirteen-year-old me, sure, uh, yeah. me <laughs> so, too. Uh, you know, forty-year-old
2: me, it convinced me.
1: <laughs> so, what does this mean? I mean, are are we are, are we just years away from you know Skynet becoming self-aware and destroying the world?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we might be a few years away from that event. All right, you know, since Turing's work, the AI research community has developed more robust definitions for determining if machines can think. You know, hmm. some optimistic forecasters say that the singularity, that moment when a software wakes up and can fend for itself, is like 25 years away. More pessimistic forecasters say it's at least 100 years away. Still, Mm -hmm. if the Google engineer's assertion is true that Lambda can pass the Turing test, that's a pretty significant milestone. I mean, Mm -hmm. we've been circling this moment for about five years or so. I mean, when you close your eyes and squint a little bit and try not to be too critical... You could say that voice assistants like Alexa come pretty close. You know, they're not there yet, but you can see it's right around the corner. I can't help thinking if if our part of
1: our natural uh, impulse as humans is to keep moving the goalposts. You know, this well, yeah, reminds yeah. me this reminds me of um, you know, way back when they would say, "Well, the humans are the only species that uses tools." And since then we found <laughs> all kinds of animals use tools, right? So we had to find different ways to define humanity. And I wonder if we're going down that same path
2: here. But it's going to be fascinating to follow for sure. Well, I've been criticized about this before, right? You know, and I'm not an artificial intelligence researcher by any means. And I'm sure there's better tests than the Turing test, right? But if I'm conversing with a voice assistant and I can't tell if it's a human or not, that's pretty close to me, and it's probably more in line with Alan Turing uh, uh, had when he was researching this stuff back, you know, right. hundred years ago. Yeah.
1: And does it matter if you can't? Does it, doesn't it matter? That's it. Right? That's the key. I think it doesn't matter really that right, much. Right. All right. Well, listen. Before I let you go, uh, you have just added four new members to the CyberWire's hash table group this week. Uh, real quick, tell us what the hash table is, and,
2: and then who's coming on board. That's right. As you know, we have a roster of experts who regularly visit the CyberWire hash table to discuss, you know, important issues of the day. Really, the secret is uh, they're mostly there to keep me honest when I go off on strange tangents, as I'm like to do, right? (laughs) So uh, you can see who they all are on the CyberWire webpage. We have over 30 of them, and the new folks include Ite Mer. He's the Senior Director of Security Strategy at Cato Networks, and he's a recent CSO from Insights, that's a Rapid7 company. Mm-hmm. We have uh, Vicrant Aurora. He's the new CISO at the Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. Mm. That, that's going to be interesting. A little extra commentary on that part of the world, all right? Yeah. Uh, we have uh, Kurt John, the recently announced global CSO at the Expedia Group, but he's the former CISO for Siemens in the Americas, so we'll get that industrial control system expertise on the table. That's great. And then last but not least, uh, William McMillan also recently announced SVP of Security Product and Program Management at Salesforce. Uh, mm-hmm. But he's just recently stepped down as the CISO for the CIA. So we're bringing yeah. in all kinds of expertise here to the Cyberwire. There's some Wire. big guns there, you guys, yeah. yes, Garrett. We have are some big guns. They don't right, know what well, they're in for. <laughs> that's right, that's right.
1: Well, you can find out more about all of that over on our website, cyberwire.com. It is part of Cyberwire Pro. Uh Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security I'm pleased to be joined once again by Thomas Etheridge. He's Senior Vice President of Services at CrowdStrike. Thomas, it's great to have you back. Uh, I want to touch base with you today on threat hunting. I know this is something you and your team focus on there at CrowdStrike. What sort of things can you share with us today?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Threat hunting is something that um, you know we focus in on to... Uh, be able to provide uh, capabilities to look for a needle in a stack of needles. And that really is what threat hunting is all about. We've seen threat actors take advantage of uh, operating system capabilities and the ability to remain stealthy within an environment, bypass old traditional uh, EDR controls and remain persistent in an environment in order to carry out their tradecraft. The best way to defend against those types of tactics is through the, uh, capability in threat hunting.
1: What are some of the specifics here in terms of, you know, things people should be implementing?
0: A couple of things. Smaller organizations that maybe have a, a smaller security organization and that don't have the ability to perform threat hunting exercises on their own should really consider outsourced or third-party threat hunting organizations, or at least ask your managed service provider if that is a service that's provided with the the offering that they deliver. Uh, Larger organizations can take advantage of threat hunting and outsource threat hunting as well, because many organizations, when they perform threat hunts, will do so during normal business hours, Monday to Friday. They might run a threat hunt or two every month or every quarter Outsource threat hunting capabilities may be able to provide differentiated threat hunting 24-7, 365, around the clock, which is typically when threat actors are most active in off-business hours.
1: Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting point there. You know, I wonder for folks who are kind of standing on the sideline here and, and haven't really engaged with threat hunting, what's your message to them?
0: Outsourced threat hunting is really meant to complement your existing security team and organization. They can be integrated in critical areas of the business, look across the telemetry that we have within your own environment, but also compare that to telemetry that they might be seeing in other parts, other services that they're offering to other customers that maybe are in the same vertical or geography. Uh, that your organization is so doing threat hunting on a broad scale really provides additional benefits and advantages that are go beyond what you might be able to provide uh, with with your your own team.
1: So, looking at some of the basics here, I mean, can we start at the beginning? Why do threat hunting at all,
0: Dave? I think the answer is pretty straightforward. We've seen a forty five percent increase in interactive, hands on keyboard intrusion activity in the telemetry that we collect in our platform uh, over the last year threat actors are very adept at using stolen credentials uh, they move quickly we've seen breakout time down in the 98 minute time frame for e crime threat actors that we we track in in our uh, with our intelligence organization the increase in the use of malware free attacks allows organizations allows threat actors, I should say, to remain stealthy and persistent and be able to go undetected with traditional security tools. So threat hunting is a a huge differentiator in understanding and getting that visibility and being able to remediate and respond to incidents when they happen.
1: All right. Well, Thomas Etheridge, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at the Cyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security. Huh? I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. The Cyberwire Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Rachel Gelfand, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.